Like Kevin said, we're, we're in the thick of our series called This Is Our Story, where we've been focusing on different stories throughout the Bible that help us define who we are as humanity, as God's people, how we relate to God, how we relate to each other. And so I think that since we're in the thick of the series, we're at a good point for us to ask the question, why do we even tell stories in the first place? And why did we choose to, to have a series focusing on that? And I'm not asking this question because sparkers are a bunch of postmodernists who love to deconstruct things, but because Jesus was a postmodernist who loved to deconstruct. I'm kidding. That's not true either. That's anachronistic and unfair to Jesus. Um, but there is a, a pivotal point in Jesus's own ministry where he explains why he tells stories. And surprise, surprise, he does so using a story. So today we're going to talk about that story that Jesus tells. So this is our story about stories, uh, alternatively titled Jesus Gets Meta, because that's what's going on here. So the story that Jesus tells is actually a parable, more specifically. It's a parable about parables. And uh, before we get into that parable, I want to give us just some background first before you enter this world that, that Jesus is going to construct. So Jesus came from a rich tradition of using stories to provide meaning and identity and purpose. Uh, even the, you know, we tend to think of the Old Testament as a list of rules to follow, but overwhelmingly it's narratives, it's stories. So not only did Jesus and the Jews that preceded him think of the Torah as how do we follow these rules? They obviously also thought of them as how do we live these stories? And Jesus is entering in that context. Even the Torah itself, the law, the first five books of the Bible, we tend to think of as especially being where all of the rules are, all of the laws to follow. But roughly half of the Torah is narratives as well. So this, it raises the bar to think, well, what, what is the potential that stories have to communicate about God in a way that rules or other forms of discourse uh, don't have? Uh, the other thing to keep in mind, too, is so Jesus didn't invent parables either. That is a form of communication that preceded him by a little bit, but... It does seem like, from the available evidence we have, that he took it to another level. He used it in a methodical, systematic way, um, in a rich variety of types of parables, to construe these worlds, elaborate worlds of meaning, um, to communicate critical parts or critical aspects of his ministry, apparently in a way that was unparalleled uh, in his time. Uh, this, uh, his uniqueness in the way he told parables comes out especially in what, uh, what's called narrative parables. Jesus told a lot of parables that have basically the elements of a story that we have today. There's an introduction and characters and a conflict and a resolution and all of that, like in uh, famous ones that a lot of us would recognize, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, or the parable of the unjust judge. These are all, you know, these are all uh, fleshed out stories with multiple dimensions to it that Jesus spent his time telling. Now, the biggest collection 
of these parables uh, that Jesus told occurs in the Gospel of Matthew. So the Gospel of Matthew has this structure where Matthew tends to take a bunch of things that Jesus said or things that Jesus taught, and he groups them together at different times throughout the book. So for example, what occurs in uh, teachings that occur in multiple different places in the other Gospels uh, sometimes occur all together like in the Sermon on the Mount. And there are lots of parables that occur in a lot of different places in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke, but uh, the Gospel of Matthew will put them all together in one collection. And Matthew does that for the parables in chapter 13. So that collection of parables in chapter 13 in Matthew begins with this parable, the parable of the sower that we're going to focus on today. So let's uh, read it first. This is how the chapter begins. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. There are two major questions that arise after Jesus tells these parables. One of those questions maybe uh, resonates with you. So after Jesus tells a story... His disciples ask, why do you speak to people in parables? And then uh, the gospel of Mark, uh, in in that version of the story, Jesus actually responds with a question as well. Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? So the stakes are very high in the introduction of these parables that Jesus puts forward. The disciples don't know why he's talking like this. Jesus is expressing, expressing some kind of disbelief at why they're not understanding. But thankfully, uh, the, the narrative flow in Matthew will answer or address both of these questions. And these are the two questions that we'll use to kind of structure the discussion today. Why do you speak in parables? And why, why was it that Jesus's audience or broader audience was struggling to understand what was going on? There are a couple ways to answer why, why did Jesus speak in parables? Um, and I want to highlight three, three answers to that today. One is that parables invite They invite people in in a way that other forms of communication can't. Jesus got into a lot of arguments, if you've read the Gospels uh, in whole. And winning arguments is very hard work. And I don't mean feeling like you won an argument. That's actually very easy. We all love ourselves. I mean actually winning an argument, actually changing somebody's mind on the thing that you're talking about. It's very, very hard. Um, it's actually cuts to uh, the core of uh, like my own um, career, my own academic discipline that I study. So I study the social psychology of persuasion and social influence. And one of the big findings uh, from this, this whole body of work is that it is very hard to change people's minds. One of the, the, the big ways of describing it is the, the, what's called the backfire effect. And that is that when you are presenting an argument to somebody in an attempt to change their mind, people feel attacked. Then this is, whether consciously or non-consciously, that is the posture you put them in. We hold opinions for various reasons, but they are ours, and changing it creates this kind of aversive reaction. 
Um, it actually invokes a fight or flight style response. There's studies of brain imagery that show that um, being given a persuasive message can create the same kind of response as physical pain, right? That's like, that's kind of what's, what's going on. And there's also evidence that shows that people already begin actively counter arguing what you're saying in their minds while you're saying it. And for all of these reasons, you can imagine uh, we all feel very tired about so many debates, ongoing debates that we're engaged in, um, in various contexts, online, real life, um, whatever is going on. Parables present this way of communicating something profound, communicating your message in a way that can lower defenses. It stimulates your imagination by inviting you to enter a world. Uh, it, can it can also, by inviting you into a different world, it gives you a level of self-awareness. It can get you outside of your own head. Uh, Bible scholar Pete Enns puts it very well. Uh, Pete Enns, uh, some of you may remember, is, uh, has visited Spark and uh, did a talk for us then too. So Pete Enns has said this in his article, Jesus the Artist. He said, speaking in parables is indeed similar to an artist's craft. Neither are systematic logical arguments aimed at intellectual persuasion. Rather, they create impressions, whole new worlds of meaning intended to turn old worlds on their heads. Further, they do not always clarify, but actually can, by design, obscure a deeper reality. To apprehend that deeper reality, one must, like a patron facing a timeless painting, continue to seek, ponder, and meditate on what is being said. Parables are radical pieces of communication meant to disorient the hearers, then reorient them to an entirely new way of thinking. The reason Jesus does so much storytelling is because stories, not debate or other proofs, are best suited for such a whole-scale reorientation. This, I think, epitomizes the best of what a parable, what you can hope for with a parable in communication. Um, the, and this kind of, this way of communicating is, is one that is not just something that was done back then. Throughout time, we've all been telling stories in these ways to try to teach each other profound things about what it means to be human, how we relate to each other, how we relate to this world. A great example in modern era of, in the modern era of uh, television and entertainment actually comes from a television show from a while ago. So you can read this. Does that uh, introduction sound familiar to some of you? Yeah. How about if I, uh, if I add on the, you know, the context for it, right? This is... You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop the twilight zone this or some variation of it was the opening line to every episode of the twilight zone that ran for several years like roughly in the in the 60s um i don't know maybe it's harder for for a lot of us to appreciate it but um critics of television consider the twilight zone one of the greatest television shows of all time the writers guild of america um ranks it as the third best written television show of all time. And it really is because every single episode created this world in which many aspects of the world corresponded to ours, but so many didn't. It broke our minds in terms of how we can tell stories and how we can be convicted about our own reality and how, you know, visiting alternate realities and thinking about how we might behave in these alternate situations can affect how we live our lives here and now and understand each other. 
Now, Jesus also, this is exactly what he's doing when he starts so many of his parables with the line, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he goes on to tell a story that sets its own world with its own rules. And then he'll explain it and then, or sorry, he'll tell the story and then leave it up for the hearers to discern the ways in which it touches on our reality and the ways in which it doesn't. So what kind of world is Jesus building in the parable of the sower that we just read? Uh, if you are like, uh, so if you ha- actually haven't read the parable of the sower in a long time or Matthew 13 in a long time, then you might actually be in the same situation as the, uh, audience apparently when they heard it in that you don't know what that parable means that I just read about the, the sower, uh, throwing seed in a bunch of different places. And so, uh, so, uh, fortunately, because the stakes were so high in getting this parable right, because it would affect how you understand all the other parables, in a, in a rare move, uh, the gospel actually records the interpretation of the parable itself. So let's go ahead and, uh, and work through that parable. So this, this was the parable that we had just read. And the, the way, main way to think about it is that there are four parts to it, right? The seeds that the sower is sowing fall in four different places. And Jesus will structure his, his answer to the parable uh, according to those, those four different points. So he says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, They last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the world, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. The par- so this parable is about the different types of responses that people can have to parables. These are, these are the ways that when Jesus tells stories that will bend your mind, it will tell you how far your mind is willing to be bent by what Jesus is saying. Our responses to stories and parables tell us so much about ourselves. They often expose us for who we really are. And that's the second major point that I want us to take away from why parables. It's that parables can expose us for who we are. The most, one of the most beautiful ways that you can see parables exposing in the way that you want them to actually comes from a story from what would be in Jesus' own history between him and his audience. It's a, a parable that the prophet Nathan tells David. So in 2 Samuel, uh, there is a, a story of uh, King David's life, and it's probably one of the most famous stories that occur in King David's life. So he, uh, one day as his soldiers are out to battle, uh, King David sees this woman named Bathsheba, and he's attracted to her, and he summons for her. And as men with power in sexist societies are wont to do, he has no trouble sexually exploiting her. He gets her to come to him. He learns her backstory, finds out she's married, doesn't care. He has sex with her. The part that he didn't want to happen was that she gets pregnant. And when she gets pregnant, that's when some real like house of cards level type stuff starts happening. Because what King David does is he, when he finds out that she's pregnant, 
he calls for her husband, who's one of his most prominent soldiers. He calls for him to come back from battle and to meet with him and have dinner and hang out. And his goal is to encourage him to have sex with his wife so that they can pass off the baby as Uriah. Uriah is the name of the, the soldier. So the pass off the baby as Uriah's and Bathsheba's. And uh, what's crazy is that Uriah is ironically such a great soldier to King David that he says, I, how can I go spend time with my wife when my colleagues are out in the battlefield? And then David tries to get him drunk, and then he still doesn't cave. And King David's like, you're such a good soldier. Oh. And so he has Uriah sent back into battle. But King David devises a plan that uh, will, it's a military strategy that will get Uriah killed in battle. He has Uriah murdered because he was unable to get Uriah to have sex with Bathsheba. So then, so he has Uriah killed, then he marries Bathsheba, and it looks like he'll be able to pass off the baby as his own. And it all looks okay from there. Um, But then, that's when Nathan enters the story. He is convicted by God to go and tell King David to expose him for what he, what he has done. Now, a lot of times, like, uh, I think we picture it like this painting. That's Nathan kind of like yelling at King David with such uh, high and mighty authority. And in this painting, King David is like lazily, he's like lounging back, uh, disinterested in the story. But there's no reason to believe that Nathan wouldn't have been terrified. He is going to the king, a man of great power, and he knows what King David does when King David hears news that he doesn't like. And yet he is convicted to tell a story. Somehow he has to convey to David that what he did was wrong. He has to persuade him to repent. And he tells a parable. This is the parable that he tells. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now David's response This is when he gets exposed for who he really is. David burned with anger against the man in that story and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. You remember what Nathan said after that? He said, David, you're that guy. And David responds with deep sorrow and repentance. He is broken down immediately by this parable that Nathan told. Can you imagine what might have happened had Nathan chosen another form of communication, a traditional (laughs) debate, point, counterpoint, a Facebook message of some kind? This could have gone very poorly, but he took a high-risk approach to tell this story, to invite David into a world where he could see himself in the characters, and then he gets David to see the truth. This is what a parable can do in its most beautiful way. In order for stories like that to hit us, though, we have to be willing to consider that we may be the villains in the stories that other people are telling. 
you know, there's the, those memes, find someone who looks at you the way you look at, you know, something else. Uh, this one this resonates to me where I would say, find someone who calls you out on your garbage the way that Nathan calls David out. It's a beautiful thing that he did, and he did it in such a beautiful way. I pray that when the day comes that you need to be convicted of something that you've done to other people, that you will have a heart that's like good soil, that's willing to hear and understand the way that David was in this particular situation. Because as the parable of the sower reveals, not everyone responds to parables the way David did. Jesus anticipates that not everyone will get what he's saying. So there's a, another way of addressing this question. So to the question, why do you speak in parables? Jesus explicitly answers that question later on. He says, he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And then he says, uh, quoting the prophet Isaiah, he reads this, he says this, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. So this is why Jesus says he speaks in parables. So this can characterize many of the listeners of his parables. At first look, this seems really unfair and un-Jesus-like. Wouldn't Jesus want to communicate about the kingdom of God in the clearest way possible so that everyone could understand him? Instead, he's saying, no, this is why I do it. It's like a secret that you will understand, but the rest, they're not going to get it. But then you realize that's not what this is about, uh, about uh, trying to communicate clearly so that everyone can understand. Jesus was never going to get everyone to understand him. There were people in Jesus's circle, the Jerusalem leadership in particular, who, were, who had a vested interest in making sure the kingdom of God did not manifest itself the way Jesus was saying that it would. What Jesus needed to do was call the people who would get his message to him and call out the people who weren't going to get his message, who were going to oppose him. And parables are amazing at serving that exact purpose. Have you ever seen satire that's so good that the target of the satire didn't get that it was about them? That can happen a lot. I have seen it happen. There was a TV show that uh, ran for several years called The Colbert Report. It's a political satire show. The, the main character of the show, Stephen Colbert, played a pundit. Uh, he was a parody of personality-driven, uh, conservative, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly type um, uh, television, uh, talk television. And... Um, Towards the end of the show, I think it was really obvious what he was trying to do, but I think some of us might forget that towards the beginning and middle runs of that show, many viewers did not know 
that it was parody or satire. In fact, uh, in, the, in the middle of the show's run, there was a study that was done in uh, political psychology. It's also a, a related field that, that I do research in. Uh, that actually talked about how, depending on what your political prior perceptions are, you are interpreting like what the punchline is of Stephen Colbert's show. And in particular, there was a, the, a main finding that was summarized that conservatives were more likely to report that Colbert only pretends to be joking and genuinely meant what he said, while liberals were more likely to report that Colbert used satire and was not serious when offering political statements. In other words, when you're the target, it's hard for you to perceive that that the joke is you. That was what was going on. And you all know, too, that I am an equal opportunity political party hater. So this is not just something that affected conservatives. Um, it was actually, uh, for those of you, too, again, who followed the show and remember, m people on both sides did not understand, like, what was going on in the show often. In fact, there was a, there was a stretch of time where the party leaders for both political parties strongly advised all congressmen and women not to go on Colbert's show because they were systematically, routinely being made to look silly or being humiliated or being exposed for their political hypocrisy on his show. That was something that was happening to both parties for a very long time. And that was the beauty of the satire that existed with that show. The Jerusalem leadership in many ways often found themselves in this exact same situation where Jesus would tell a story with villains in it and the villains were them. They were the ones who ironically found themselves opposing the kingdom of heaven work that Jesus was doing. Their uh, response can be summarized uh, in one way. So in John 10, there's a, a summary that's given. Jesus told them this parable, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Uh, small side note to keep in mind, this does not mean that all Pharisees were like this. Jesus himself ran in Pharisee circles. Pharisees, just in, these, in this context, it's a shorthand way of describing the Jerusalem leadership that particularly opposed Jesus. So that is one way that people can respond to satire when you're not uh, willing to be open to finding yourself in the story. Another way is you do know that you're the target in the story, and it causes you to shut down. And that's what happens in, uh, in later on in the Gospel of Matthew where it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. Now, these parables have the power to simultaneously expose people for the work that they're doing in opposing the kingdom and to call out the people who genuinely, with soft hearts, want to do good kingdom work. Upton Sinclair, I think, uh, he characterized this type of re negative response to parables really well when he said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. That's what's going on. That's what's at stake when these parables are told. I also think that <clears throat> another great uh, theologian, has covered it well, uh, her, uh, named Taylor Swift, stylized Tay-Tay, as uh, some of you may know, as uh, she describes it as uh, haters going to hate. That's what this is. That's what's going on. When, when Jesus is saying, this is why I speak in parables, some people aren't going to get it. He's not saying he wants them to be confused. What he is saying is that they are going to be confused and they will be exposed for what they are in that process. Parables have the power to simultaneously expose the haters and to shelter the victims of their hatred. That's what's going on when Jesus says, the secrets belong to you and the others won't get it. 
There's one last point about parables that I want to share. But in order to get this one, we have to look at how this uh, passage is used across all four Gospels. So this was the response that Jesus says will characterize uh, the people who, who just don't get what he's saying. It's that they will, all, you know, seeing they'll never see, hearing they'll never hear. Now, this passage, so this, this quotation from Isaiah, occurs in all four Gospels. In what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which tend to be very similar, especially in how they structure the parable content. So in, in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this quotation is used in exactly the same way. Jesus tells the parable of the sower. His disciples ask, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus says, it's secret. Some people will not understand it. And then he gives this quotation to characterize how they won't understand it. Now, the Gospel of John also has this response. So Jesus gives this response to something uh, that's happening uh, in the gospel, gospel of John, but it's not to parables. So the Gospel of John doesn't have like sections of parables. It doesn't have a collection. It doesn't focus on that very much. But what the Gospel of John does have is a lot of signs or miracles, right? These are miracles ranging from turning water into wine to raising uh, Jesus' friend Lazarus from the dead. So these are things that are, these are powerful signs that are going on in, in the Gospel of John. But here is the response that, or the, here's how Jesus describes uh, people's negative response to the miracles that Jesus is doing. He says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. For this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, and then he quotes that Isaiah passage that we've been talking about. So to get this last point that I'm trying to make is you have to realize the function that the parables serve in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is the function that miracles serve in the Gospel of John. Parables, well told, well done, are miraculous. They cause the same level of either utter belief and utter disbelief. They are high-stakes ways that God uses to communicate who he is and what he's about. There's a lot of times when I've talked to people who are believers in Jesus and non-believers who've said, you know, I wish that um, I wish we could do miracles like Jesus did back then today, or uh, I feel like, uh, you know, it would just be more persuasive. I feel like it would be very easy for all of us to believe in Jesus if that kind of stuff was going on today. And I think two things, uh, I have a problem with two things with that. One is that I think that overestimates the power that miracles have. Jesus performed these things even in his own day, and people who straight up saw that stuff happen were often in disbelief. Because if you are a hater of what Jesus is doing, you are gonna hate no matter what he does. The miracles, all they serve to do is help good people and expose you for who you are for not loving that, those good things that Jesus is doing. The other thing is, is I think when we say things like that, we're selling other ways of communicating who God is short, as if parables don't have that same level of power to accomplish these profound things that miracles can accomplish in uh, the gospel of John. So my third point is that parables inspire, and I mean that in the, in the spirit-filled way. We think of miracles as something that's empowered by the Holy Spirit for us to do. I think of parables, good parables that we can tell each other about God as something that the Holy Spirit inspires us or empowers us to do. So there we go. Those, these are our, our three ways that I think are highlighted in Matthew 13 
for why parables. They invite us into different worlds. They expose us for who we really are. And they inspire us for communicating God in meaningful ways. There's a, for, to conclude, I actually wanted to share an example of what I think is an extremely well done parable that was done recently that uh, epitomizes all of these main points. So while you watch this, I'm going to show, this is a, it's a spoken word piece. It's about six minutes long. And I'm going to show it in its entirety. And as you listen, I want you to think of the characteristics of a good parable that we've talked about today. Think about how the parable invites you into a world that is familiar, that you recognize, but also operates with some rules that are a little different than what you'd expect. Think about how, think about how the, uh, the speaker is trying to address a very sensitive and controversial topic to an audience that goes beyond just the typical point-counterpoint debate that we can get stuck in. And then think about how this parable inspires the audience to move forward in a meaningful way about what Jesus is about on this earth. So with those things in mind, let's listen to it, and that'll be it. All right. Well... 20 years, 20 years, but, you know, who's counting, right? I mean, 20 years, she, she endured a, a said marriage where sister really ain't have no say in the original arrangements nor the terms thereof, but 20 years, he beat her senseless. Uh, Somehow or another, she managed to muster up the quote-unquote bravery to stick around because one day he decided maybe he shouldn't hit her no more. Now, granted, that was due to outside pressure that threatened the security of his pockets, but he stopped, right? But the damage was done. And on their 40th wedding anniversary, he decides, well, they both decide, maybe we'll throw a nice little shindig. Spare no details, all expenses, pull out all the stops, invite all their family and friends. She is to smile, celebrate her husband's greatness, talk about how far they've gone as a country, I mean, as a couple. They're to reminisce on the good old days when everybody knew their places. They're to talk about all the great trumps, I mean, the great triumphs that they've accomplished. All the lands and the places that they've conquered, I mean, that they stole, I mean, uh, that they visited. And before any of their friends come in the still silence, you could hear the creak of the floor as he walks, touches ever so gently the caresses, the small of her back and says, babe, look how far we've come. Those last 20 years, they were rough, but these, these have been good. Let's not talk about the last ones because, you know. They make everybody uncomfortable and they, and they, and they separate. And why would you want to separate? Let's, let's unify. Let's talk about unity. What is she to do? Well, she's to hold her little sparkler, wear her pretty little red, white, and blue dress and act like the first 20 years didn't happen. As if she's still not suffering under the thumb of the mental walls that he didn't build. Oh yeah, he ain't hit her no more, but he don't have to. The scars do all that work for her. You know, she ain't been the same since. Her hip, it's a little bit out of a place. Her, her jaw, it's kind of a jar to the left, so her smile a little crooked. And every once in a while, he compares her to other wives. Like, you know, she ain't as pretty as y'all are, but he trying to tell her, I don't see color. I mean, I don't see beauty. 
She is to be thankful that now she could be in the big house. She is to celebrate her rights, her right to vote. You know on what's for dinner, right? I mean, things are good now, or at least they better than they were. You should pat your nation, I mean, your husband on his back, tell him he's the greatest nation, I mean, the greatest country, I mean, the greatest man in the world. What is she to do? You ask if it was so bad, why didn't she leave? As a matter of fact, why is she always playing the victim? Why is everything about her? Don't other wives get hit too? Don't all wives matter? Why am I forced? Why am I forced to only mourn your scars? You know, girls hit girls all the time. We call that wife-on-wife -wife crime. Why I need to worry about just yours? <laughs> and if it was so bad, if it really was so bad, why was he not prosecuted? Why did not all of your friends who saw this all going on step in and say something? Maybe she's making this up. Why did your church not even step in instead silenced you and said this is not our issues? And in a weird twist of magic, somehow she just became the victim and the villain. And I don't know how this worked. Does he not owe her? Does forgiveness did not require restitution first? Does the cross that you say you cling to does not scream that justice comes before reconciliation? How can we talk about unity if you're not ready to admit you wrong? Is she not worth Justice. And what about the ladies that fight back? Can you not understand why she might think to take matters into her own hands and punch this sucker every once in a while? Even though we know, even though we know that vengeance is just a bastard version of justice, can you not understand the pain for which this young lady is suffering? Is it not too late to say you sorry, huh, Justice? Those thoughts don't plague your mind. I don't know. You know what? Never mind. Happy 4th of July. Enjoy your ribs. God, thank you so much for stories. Thank you for giving our church extended time and space to reflect on them. Thank you for communicating to us in so many beautiful ways and inspiring us in our imagination to communicate to each other in so many beautiful ways. God, thank you for speaking to us the most clearly through your son, your true word. God, we ask that you help us to be more like him every day, to understand him and his world more and more, to appreciate how much he loved all of us and wanted all of us to belong to him for the sake of all of our flourishing. God, help us to be creative Help us to be sensitive. Help us to be resourceful. 
Help us to use everything we can in every way we know to communicate anything, to use all of our words and actions and music to your glory and to the love and graciousness and benefit of us all. You are beautiful and we love you. Thank you so much. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you.